0: So we'll read responsibly now, question and answers from Lord's Day 5, as we've entered into the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism here, the part on deliverance or grace. Remember guilt, grace, gratitude. So here we are starting grace, and we'll read question and answer 12 to 15. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we daily Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also true God. Now we'll turn in the Bibles to our scripture passage this evening from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 to 28. We'll begin reading. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people that is their brothers even though their brothers are descended from Abraham this man however did not trace his descent from Levi yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises and without doubt the lesser person is blessed by the greater In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law it was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's quoting Psalm 10. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day First for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So far the reading of God's word. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening. I almost want to stop there because the author of Hebrews has already said it so beautifully there, so powerfully in that letter, which was probably a sermon that he gave to his own congregation, but we will be considering it tonight. Don't worry. Uh, we're considering tonight the topic of mediation. Uh, mediation, of course, it, is, it happens when there are two disputing parties, when there's conflict, Right. And so this third party enters in, the mediator, to resolve the dispute, to resolve the conflict. And the mediator is there to facilitate the resolution, to bring about harmony and peace when there's conflict, bitterness, and and fighting. And so for us, our own need of mediation between us and God obviously implies estrangement from him. A separation has occurred because of our sin. There is conflict. There is dispute, this huge dispute between us as the high criminals against his holy majesty, the Holy One of Israel, and his own just nature. His justice demands our punishment. And so how can we resolve this great dispute and live in harmony with God, live at peace with him? What resolution can there be for us as sinners, and who can facilitate that resolution for us? Well, to answer those questions, we have Three parts of the answer tonight we'll be looking at from Hebrews the passage we looked at. First, the imperfect mediation. secondly the perfect mediator, and thirdly, our perfection in him. So first the imperfect mediation. We consider first that in the Old Testament era, before the arrival of Jesus Christ uh, back in Israel, God graciously set up for his people the temple, where his presence dwelt. And he also set up the sacrificial system with uh, the Levitical priests there offering sacrifices day after day. And the Levitical priesthood, uh, they were priests that all came from the tribe and lineage of Levi, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, also known as Israel, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. And so this was a good thing that the Israelites had that God gave to Israel because they had mediators. They had people that could stand before God and represent them to God. And they also performed daily sacrifices, these Levitical priests of animals and other grain offerings on behalf of the people. Why? In order to appease God's justice against them. Consider this, it was only because of the Levitical priesthood and that sacrificial system with all of that bloodshed, that God was able to dwell in their presence, to dwell in the midst of a sinful people and not, in a sense, lash out injustice and strike them down. It was because of that gracious gift of the Levitical priesthood and the temple. So it was good, it was helpful, but it was imperfect. They couldn't, find, they couldn't fully have Uh, resolution with God through that mediation. They couldn't reach a point of full resolution. They had a usefulness, the Levitical priests, up until a point, but they could never arrive at that full and perfect resolution between God and his people. And that's why God Throughout the Old Testament, we find that he always had the plan to ultimately dissolve the Levitical priesthood and the physical temple itself to make way for a better mediation, the mediation that Christ our Lord would bring. Now, what does our text itself say about the imperfection of the mediation that the Levitical priest offered? Well, it says quite a few things. For instance, it says that the Levitical priests were appointed in all their weakness, in all their weakness. So they themselves were sinners. Their service never ended because they needed to offer sacrifices day after day, and they eventually died. And so there was a lot of weakness tied into them. They themselves were sinners. They did not have an indestructible life, etc., What's more, the sacrificial system that they served under, that they were part of as a regulation, was weak and ultimately unprofitable. Why? Well, the blood of animals cannot fully atone for the sins of humans. As we consider in the Heidelberg Catechism, God's justice demands that sins that have been committed against him by humans, that that justice would be exacted upon humans, not animals, right? And so God's justice demands... A full execution of his righteous punishment against humanity, against humans, his own people, right? And so for those reasons, uh, we, we find that the sacrificial system was inadequate. Uh, at the end of the day, not, not profitable. It didn't bring about that full resolution. It didn't fully forgive them of all their sins. And so God had promised to send another mediator who would necessarily set up a new way of approaching God and his presence, entering into it according to a new covenant of grace, which is really all of the main points that we find in the book uh, or the letter to the Hebrews and what he's arguing, this better way that Christ has brought. And this was promised in the Old Testament in a variety of places, like in Deuteronomy 30, when God was promising that he would circumcise their hearts in the future. In Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, writing it upon their heart, which is a text that the author of Hebrews refers to. Ezekiel 36 as well, the sprinkling of, uh, of the Holy Spirit, the renewal of our hearts, taking out the heart of fle- uh, heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. And also Psalm 110, Um, which is a text that the author makes reference to here in our text. And that leads us to our second point, the perfect mediator. So here, our author in verse 17 makes reference to Psalm 110. And he's presenting this interesting, fascinating argument about Melchizedek. And we'll come to that. But I want to first read Psalm 110 for us, which comes from King David. And it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, so think of this, this is King David speaking, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek. And so that was King David speaking. Now, is the author of Hebrews correct here in applying this to Jesus? Well, naturally, yes. And we know that not just because the author of Hebrews uh, was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also because in the three synoptic accounts of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus himself points to this psalm and makes this connection. He says that. David was speaking about the Messiah himself. For example, Mark 12, 35 to 37, he says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord how then can he be his son? Now, what Jesus is getting out there as he's saying, well, first of all, that David's referring to the Messiah. He's referring to himself. Um, so he's not only what, da- what uh, Jesus is saying is he's not only the son of David, but he's also David's Lord. And so it speaks to his humility and his human nature, being a descendant of King David, according to his biology, but also there's something different about him. He's set apart. He's David's Lord. He's higher than King David. He comes from a higher uh, lineage, so to speak, the very divine nature of Christ himself. Hold on one second here. Hmm. Okay, now the argument here in Hebrews is fascinating. Melchizedek, he's presented. As a mysterious prototype of a better mediator who was to come, and of course Melchizedek was this mysterious figure, we kind of talked about him last week that enters a scene in Genesis and shows up after uh, Abraham has this battle with the kings, and Melchizedek comes and he blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth of his winnings right and in Melchizedek we see something interesting both the offices of king and priest, they come together in his person. He was both the priest, the text says, of the God Most High, and also the king of Salem. And Salem, that city, uh, Shalom, it comes from the same word, root word Shalom in Hebrew, was apparently called this long before it was called city of our Shalom, city of our peace, Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, he was the king of Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem is what the author of Hebrews is saying. So he's that king, but he's also a, a priest as well, and he comes and serves Abraham in that unique way. In, in this way, David was anticipating that his biological descendant would be his lord, but would also be a king and a priest following the order of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews here is unpacking what David claimed, what David received from the Lord, probably by way of uh, prophecy. And what we find with Jesus is that he is a better priest with no weakness at all. Now, first of all, we, we find that he is not a mere man. The text refers to him as the pre-existent son of God, like Melchizedek without father or mother, without genealogy, Without beginning of days or end of life. The text says resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever, exalted above the heavens. And so he's not a mere man. He is the very son of God. Uh, He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is also, the text says, a true man. Because it says, the text, it is clear that our Lord, referring to Jesus, descended from Judah. And so his descendants, he is a descendant biologically from the tribe of Judah, from King David. So he's also a true man, true God, true man. And he's not, not only that, but he's not a sinner like the Levitical priest. He didn't need to make a sacrifice to atone for his own sins. Uh, Not the blood of animals, but the body and blood of a true human. His sacrifice alone was enough to atone for all our sins. Like the text says, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so we see the great strength and perfection of our mediator Christ. That through Jesus Christ, we have a better way of drawing near to God. His order of priesthood is greater than that of Levi. And that's where it gets especially interesting in the argument from the author of Hebrews because he, ref- he speaks about how um, this order of Melchizedek is greater than the order of the Levitical priesthood by referring to how Melchizedek was the one who blessed Abraham. So Melchizedek in that encounter with Abraham back in Genesis he was the one who blessed Abraham. And he says that we all know, and it's kind of common knowledge, according to the author of Hebrews, that the greater always blesses the lesser. And so in that case, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And who was Abraham? Well, he was the father of all the Jews, all of the tribes of Israel, including the Levites. And so in a sense, Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek blessed him. And so Melchizedek's order of priesthood is greater than the order of the the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, because the greater always blesses the lesser. And so that's fascinating. It's his argument showing and proving to us that this order to which Jesus belongs as a priest is of a higher, greater nature than that of the Levitical priesthood. And consider this, we... We see here in Hebrews seven twenty-eight. look at that verse at the very end of our passage. The oath that appointed the son came after the law. So that means that on the human timeline, in the story of redemptive history, at some moment after Sinai, before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, there in the mysterious realms of glory, we can assume that God made an oath to his son. And this, I believe, is drawn out of the text logically here. Who was present when that happened? Well, who else but the whole host of heaven, the angels. And we know from Peter in his letter that for thousands of years, the angels longingly looked into how God himself would fulfill his promises and save his people from their sins, how God would work out this resolution between him and his people who are sinners. And so perhaps this oath Uh, to his son, giving the son uh, this great oath and this priesthood. Perhaps it happened in the audience of the angels in a similar style to the episode that we find in Revelation chapter 5 with respect to the scroll at the right hand of God that needed to be opened, that was sealed, right? So perhaps the King of Glory, think of this, imagine this, perhaps the King of Glory published an open scroll with a kind of job description, for all the host of glory to see. And maybe it read something like this. One redeemer of my chosen people wanted, must become a true man, must forgo glorious splendor to become a vain curse, must complete all righteousness without a single sin or lack of love. Now, perhaps at that point, some angels were stepping forward with willingness. We can do that, I can do that while well, there's maybe stepped back and then perhaps the angel kept on reading the announcement and said wait there's more this redeemer must also fully satisfy god's divine justice against the sins of humanity by dying in a body on a tree must be able to go through death and defeat it from the inside out must really die and then rise to life finally this redeemer must be one whose only motive is love. Now, once read aloud, maybe a mighty angel cried out, like we find in Revelation 5, who is worthy? Who is worthy to be this redeemer? And perhaps there was silence. Perhaps no one in heaven or on earth under the earth came forward, and so they wept, perhaps. And then perhaps another angel cheered, look, don't weep. The great I am that I am. He's coming, the eternal one, the Son of God of God the beloved of the father lo he comes he is able he is willing and now we know that he is love now i know that's speculation but we do find here that there was this oath that the father gave to his son at some moment of history in that timeline between the the giving of the law and the arrival of Christ himself and so Perhaps it went down in that fashion. But we know that there was an oath given and that Christ was willing to take up that responsibility to become that mediator for us, the very son of God willing to take on our human nature to suffer in our place in order to make that resolution happen. And the end result is our perfection in him. And that's our third brief point here where we consider the effects of Christ's mediation for us, his perfect mediation. And for that, I want to look back at Hebrews 10, verse 14 to 22, which is what we read in part with our call to worship, where he says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so there are four just brief things I want to mention here. The the perfection that we receive now by faith alone in Christ through his mediation, the full resolution that he has accomplished and won for us. First, He says that he has made us perfect forever. Amazing. Uh, He has... has, uh, fully reconciled us with God, fully forgiving us all our sins, complete reconciliation with our God. Despite all of our sins, Jesus paid the full price, and that's the second thing, for our, the full forgiveness of all our sins. No more need for, for sacrifices. And our obedience to the Lord is not, it's not a sacrifice. We're not atoning for our sins. That atonement has been fully accomplished for us by the blood of Christ and his body on the tree and therefore we have full access into god's holy presence unlike the, the the jewish believers before the death of christ who had to go through all of those layers in order to get to god's holy presence and none except the whole the the high priest could enter into the holy of holies and that only once a year now those barriers have been removed the curtain has been torn too and we have full access through Christ and his mediation to enter into the presence of God with full assurance. Not with fear, not, not with fear of judgment, but with full assurance, the text says. And so we see the great full perfection, the completeness of our salvation that Christ, our perfect mediator, has accomplished for us. We'll end there tonight. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for this Um, Marvelous letter from an unknown author to us who wrote to Hebrew Christians who had embraced Christ as their Messiah but were tempted to go back to the old way. And as we consider his arguments inspired by the Holy Spirit, as we consider this great, perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, David's son, yet David's Lord. Uh, We recognize that he is our king and our priest forever and that he is our perfect mediator. He meets all of our needs. He is holy, blameless, pure, and he has indestructible life, true man and true God, held together by his one person. Uh, We rejoice in what you have done for us and Christ's willingness to come and receive that oath And enter into his office as our mediator. And we ask, Lord, that you would instill within us, as we considered at the end there, some of these deep truths. Uh, Consider, uh, Lord, uh, help us consider and take in the reality of our perfection that we have now in Christ by union with him. The forgiveness of our sins, the full access that we have to you through prayer and the full assurance and hope that we have in Christ May that, in, may that encourage each and every one of us here tonight that we might walk in greater obedience and faithfulness to you with grateful hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.